Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what in our lives sets us up to experience joy? And how does joy make us act and feel? Those are the central questions poet and essayist Ross Gay explores in his new book, Inciting Joy. In essays about gardening, hanging with friends, pick up basketball, and the death of his father, Gay looks at the practices and rituals that make joy available to us, and we'll talk to Gay about the connections between joy and sorrow and joy and solidarity, and why he says that joy, which gets us to love, is a practice of survival. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What incites joy, and what does joy incite? Those are questions Ross Gay explores in his new essay collection, where he writes, Attending to what we hate in common is too often all the rage, and it happens also to be very big business. Noticing what we love in common and studying that might help us survive. It's why I think of joy, which gets us to love, as a practice of survival. Gay is the best-selling author of Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude and The Book of Delights. His new book is called Inciting Joy. Ross Gay, welcome to Forum. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you. You know, I was immediately struck by the use of the word incite. Mm-hmm. When you look at the definition of incite or inciting, it's usually defined as stirring up, like provoking, mm-hmm. almost like a mob. Like It has this negative connotation, but you use it with joy, inciting joy. Why? Uh, <laughs> you know, I think to some people it would be negative because I think really one of the um, one of the questions I have, and you know, the definition that I sort of offer of joy, yes. um, which is a riff on many other people's definition, I think, is something like the the light that emanates from us as we help each other carry our sorrows, um, which to me is a kind of profoundly um, tender making. Um, feeling a tender you know it's a sort of it's a state of tenderness and it's a state of sort of um of of bearing witness to our 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 commonalities among which are our common not maybe not the same sorrows but that we sorrow and i feel like that that incites stuff among things like sharing you know (laughs) so so that word inciting i don't i don't mean it not to be like sort of i mean it to mean inciting yeah you know you yeah. absolutely do. And in that process, I think it really speaks to how you ask us in this book to recalibrate sort of our understanding of what joy is. You actually yeah. begin by talking about some of the misconceptions that we mm-hmm. have about joy. So can you talk about that a little bit, um, about what joy 
in your view, is not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think joy is not like um, something you can buy. I think maybe that's actually the easiest way to say it. I, I <laughs> a lot of times, I spend a lot of time actually sort of, you know, trying to define this, but I think maybe that's the best way of saying it. It's not something you buy or accomplish. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, like, you won't, you, it's not going to be joy in my estimation of joy, how I think of joy if you get like, you know, a new baseball cap, you know, or, or a new, you know, the new Tesla. Um, I, my, and, and if, but though if that is your definition of joy, it, it makes sense that a question <laughs> like, well, why, how could you talk about joy at a time like this? Mm. You know, um, that would make sense if you're talking, if you're, if your definition of joy is something like, um, you know, like happy things. Yeah. You say like organizing a closet or acing a test <laughs> or something is not your definition of joy. Totally. Right. But if your definition is kind of like what I said and it and it is uh, emerges from and is actually constituted by the fact that we all are heartbroken, um, that. That makes it to me a a more grave, fundamentally grave, like meaning from the grave, because maybe the first sorrow is that we we die and everyone we love dies. And yeah. Um, and secondly, it it like it makes it when I say grave, it makes it serious as hell. Yeah. You know, it's like every time is a time like this. And and you feel like joy is a serious thing that is deserving of rigorous, serious study. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. It. it you know, I'm a writing teacher and I'm often um, I've had many conversations, that kind of conversation, too, you know, uh, you know, among people like how can we talk about joy at a time like this? Um, but I also have young people say that I haven't um, I've been told that, you know, that's not a serious subject. And to that, I say, oh, that's the wrong definition of joy. You're, they're not talking about joy. They're talking about they're talking about a kind of consumerist idea of of joy, you know, a kind of marketable idea of joy, you know, by joy that, that you can go get. But I'm not, I'm talking about joy as something that you join, you sort of enter into, um, maybe by yeah. practicing. Well, one of the incitements to joy, your book has these 14 essays all about a different kind of incitement to joy, um, is about being with another. It's one of my favorites. It's about hanging out with your friend Bernardo, <laughs> and it's called Out of Time. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could read a little bit from that essay to us, and feel free to, to set it up if you want or just to dive right in, whatever. Yeah, whatever so how's this, this essay starts. <laughs> I love how it starts because it's sort of ridiculous. It starts, as some of these essays do, like the little prompt of the essay is that I was going to get coffee at my um favorite little coffee shop in Bloomington. It's called Hopscotch, where I live, Bloomington, Indiana. And um I saw that there was a note that said, Be back, be right back in five minutes. And I was sort of like, Oh, I love the be right back note, you know. And, was, and then it sort of sent me on this reverie. And part of the reverie is like sort of thinking about time and thinking about the I mean maybe we'll talk more about this, but thinking about the ways that being together with one another slowly in time is a kind of potentially radical, you know, when you can do it, things happen. Huh. And, ma and magical things happen. Um, insightful, inciting things happen, actually. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> um, when I mentioned to my friend Bernardo that I was going to write about joy, he suggested I do an essay on the hang. There's a lot of footnotes in this, in this book, so I'm going to read this footnote. He suggested I do an essay on the hang. Footnote. A synonym for which is visiting. 
An Italian old-timer who grew up with my mother and showed up at a reading of mine said it as he was telling me afterward about my mother and her folks. My mom was, her best, was best friends with his big sister. He delivered milk to my grandparents when they lived out on the farm. They'd call him in to have a cup of coffee. It went on a bit. And as he was noticing and enjoying the memories and stories emerging, it looked to me like lights turning on in a building with many windows. He said to me, You know, Ross, you forget the stories until you start visiting like this. So let me go back. He suggested, Bernardo suggested I do an essay on the hang, by which he means hanging out with no discernible purpose or goal, with no discernible end in sight. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that the conclusion of the hang will be bodily, having to eat or sleep, or relational, gotta go home to make dinner for my lady, or even earthly. Damn, it's getting dark and I'm on my bike, I better go. But before I do, lord these fireflies. Yo, have you ever heard Nina Ver Nina's version of George Harrison's My Sweet Lord? Come on, let's do that first. Put it on the record player. It was Don's. You won't believe this. Let me tell you, I know few people as good at the hang as Bernardo. When dude sits down on our porch, sometimes after we've worked out, sometimes after we've played ball, sometimes after we've gone over some poems, he will cross his legs and topple into the first of several stories. It is a study in associational narrative logics. And the last thing he's thinking about, I have to tell you this, is that you or he maybe has somewhere to be. The last thing he's looking at is his watch. Everyone's got everything to do. But when you drop into the hang, that's all there is to do. Or how my Filipino friend Patrick Rosal says in his tract on the lateness of Filipinos, quote, flavor is a function of time. That's Ross Gay reading from his new essay collection, Inciting Joy. It really beautifully captures what it feels like when you're in conversation with a friend. You're totally tuned into each other, and just the, the conversation is flowing really organically. I think one of the questions that came out of this for me was, is there a relationship between unmarked time and joy? And I think you hinted that there is in your view, but I'm wondering what you have to say about that. And when you say unmarked time, what do Meaning you mean? Meaning where you're not checking it, where you're not yeah. aware of it, where you're yeah. not saying, yeah, this is what I got to do next. Totally. And one of the things that I sort of wonder about in the book is that um, is is the ways that being, being in this unmarked time, as you say, um, I like that, unmarked time. It, it actually allows us to sort of get to know each other in, an, in, a, in a kind of unboundaried way, you know. And so often it feels like we're kind of, um, we're kind of, we're cordoning off our sort of amount of time that we're able to be with one another or the amount of sort of the depth of our conversation in a way, the depth of our potential to getting close. Yeah. And, and when you don't do that, then it feels, I don't know, I don't know. My experience is that when we don't do that, you know, like, we're, maybe it's something like this too. Like, I teach, so I, actually, like, there's these moments of sort of where time gets messed with in classrooms periodically. You go over stuff, you take too long and stuff, where you spill over into these kind of depths of connection that you didn't know were there. So if you think about that, and, you know, if joy is sort of fundamentally about connection, and witnessing and attending to and maybe really caring for our connection, um, then I think absolutely, you know. And I and I, I mean, I feel like that is profoundly important. Actually, that yeah. the the possibility of being with each other um, without 
like I'm gonna say it like this. I don't know if this is right, but urgently without urgency, something like that. Yeah. You know? And if you're exploring what is possible in a state of joy, like where it can go, to some degree it sounds like you really do need to have the freedom and time to let that happen. That's one of the things. It, yeah, I mean, it feels like that, you know, and, and which we don't always have, obviously, <laughs> for all kinds of reasons. For some of those reasons being imposed, you know, and that's one of the things, like the imposition of the absence of time or the imposition of the scarcity of time I talk about. And one of the stories I sort of tell about this is that as my father's dying of liver cancer and my mother, because, you know, she's the one who had, you know, the job that had the decent insurance, she worked every second because, go figure, they're trying to lay everyone off. And, you know, just like, you know, regular old, I'm not going to curse. And um, so she was working overtime. I think she was probably working some Saturdays. She was all the while my dad's time on this planet was was going away. And she yeah. was and her time was being taken by the by this job. Um, and I think that's by design. You know, I mean, duh, I should, I should say duh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it's so duh, yeah. because it is something that is so easy to lose sight of when yeah. you say um, that there's something deliberate about it. But yeah. we're coming up on a break, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Good. we've got more time afterward. <laughs> so let me just remind listeners, we're talking with poet and essayist Ross Gay. You may know him from the Book of Delights. His new essay collection is Inciting Joy, and you, our listeners, are invited to join this conversation about joy. What incites joy for you? What does joy incite? How do you experience it? Where does it take you? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or call us, 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about joy this hour with Ross Gay, poet and SAS professor of English at Indiana University in Bloomington. His new essay collection is Inciting Joy, What Incites It, How We Experience It. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions and reflections at 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by emailing forum at kqed.org. Kristen writes, yes, I love this discussion. We all need to access joy more. I find joy in moments with my children. Is joy different from happiness? 
yeah, and I'm not trying to like you know impose a definition on anyone. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but I do think, and it's funny with kids when you know talking about time and and kids. Um, and actually, as we were getting off, I was thinking play. You know, there's something that's so wonderful about kids, and I know that's also why they're um, <laughs> a pain in the ass. <laughs> is because their capacity for um, a kind of a wonder, their capacity for wonder, for sort of falling out of time is astonishing. You know, that kind of, yeah, their sort of potential for astonishment is astonishing. And, and, and witnessing that, I think if it's, if it's possible, if we're able to, I think it sort of is a, such a sort of lesson, such a sort of teaching for us to sort of be reminded that, oh, right, I haven't actually, I haven't actually looked at a dandelion the way this kid's looking at a dandelion for like 25 years, or I haven't, you know, and then when, you know, to me, the way I think of that, like when we start to approach that a little bit, um, and I'll shout out a beautiful book by my friend Amy Nezakumatatil called World of Wonder. When we start to sort of do that, then to me, everything becomes unknown. You know, when you look the way a child looks at, you know, the birds circling overhead, yeah. you know, you realize, oh, I don't know anything, which... <laughs> Which is a kind of groundlessness that I think actually encourages us to sort of reach to one another and be like, whoa, you probably don't either. <laughs> so let's get together. Yeah. You know? And, and I like your point about how you don't prescribe a definition. You really are just suggesting suggesting possible yeah. definitions. Yeah. And to explore those, one of the ones that you explore is the connection between joy and sorrow. Yeah. And, and just before the break, you mentioned your father dying of liver yeah. cancer. And... Um, it's in an essay that you wrote called Through Tears I Saw. And I think it can be hard uh, for some of us to conceive of the death of someone as an incitement to joy. Mm -hmm. But could you talk about that connection for you? Yeah, for sure. And I was recently talking about this and someone made a great point and they were like, was it in the moment? Was it an incitement to joy? Or it, in retrospect, yeah. was it an incitement to joy? And this essay... Um, it sort of it, it tells a lot about my, me and my dad's relationship, which was deep and loving and abiding and, you know, like a regular, complicated, difficult relationship. But it sort of tells intensely the last five or so months of his life. Um, and one of the things that happened was that despite the fact that we had a pretty hard time talking to one another and like I said, like loved each other to death and um and I think we were actually like, you know, like really psychically connected, actually deeply connected um we we had a hard time often being together and and then suddenly he was dying and um and suddenly that was i was i was able to so i moved in and we were immediately sort of physically very close and the close you know it's sort of like i was sort of with him you know me and my mother but and other people too my nana my um my brother um other people, my friend Jay, like there's so many people sort of like show up. That's one of the things. <laughs> when the trouble comes to you, like if you're lucky, which I, you know, I feel lucky, like this sort of people showed up, you know. Um, but with my father, I, I was as close to him as I'd ever been as an adult for sure. And um, not in some kind of dramatic way of us like hashing out like what our troubles were or anything like that. It was just more like, oh, you can't open, the, open that water bottle. Let me get it for you, you know? Or, oh, you can't eat, but maybe if I make you some eggs, you'll be able to eat a little something. Or, yeah, let's watch this stupid, you know, 
thing on TV together, you know? Um, and finally, the, the sort of the, I think the, you know, I've had a couple of chaplains recently talk to me about the Book of Delights and certain stuff. And, mm -hmm. and the thing that they sort of reminded me is that when you're with someone, when I was with my father in the midst of his dying, you become more alive, you know? I, I think that's one of the great lessons probably, you know, people who do that kind of work would tell us is that there's a kind of profound aliveness that we are experiencing when we're in the midst of our beloveds or whomever is dying probably. I guess the second question is the fact that we're always in the midst of our dying. So how then do we proceed with that kind of radiant living if we can practice that too? You yeah. Know? Is that what you were saying earlier when you when you think of joy as basically our ability to tend to each other's sorrows, that we all share the fact that we're dying yeah, <laughs> even as we yeah, speak yeah. Um, and that we all have sorrows? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, that seems like a pretty big one, you know? Um, even if you're not too hung up on your own dying, which plenty of people aren't, um, most people most people feel pretty devastated when who they love dies, you know? Yeah. And it's a shared a shared connection for sure. Totally. Uh, let me go to caller Tina from Half Moon Bay. Hi, Tina. You're on. Hi. I, I wanted to say a couple of things. Um, one thing was about the connections with people and how time doesn't really matter. I've also experienced that, I've experienced that with friends dear friends, um, conversations that went on for hours that, you know, we were just so immersed in that it was like a, a few minutes. <laughs> and also I've experienced that when I'm doing, when I'm creating art. Yeah. And it is a feeling of joy and fulfillment. And um, I, it just struck me when you were mentioning that about that connection, that, that I think when you're creating something, that's joyful, mm -hmm. really joyful. Yep. And the other thing I wanted to say was when you were just speaking about your father, um, when my mother was dying, we, were, we had her in a hospice, and um, right at the end, it looked like it was going to be coming very soon, so I, I gathered all my siblings, and we were all there when she took her last breath, and it just struck me at that moment that, she was there when we all took our first breath mm. and we were there to experience her last breath with her. Mm. And that was so profound. Mm. So I, I love all the things you're talking about today. They, they're very meaningful to me. Well, Tia, thank you yeah, thank beautiful. for contributing that to, to this discussion. Um, what Tina just said has made me think of a lot of different things. Um, I am curious when she was talking about or when Tina was talking about making art uh, as something that feels like it incites joy or or incites something as a result of yeah. being in a state of joy. It made me wonder about the connection between joy and solitude because I feel mm -hmm. like so much of our discussion has been in interaction and yeah. with others. How, yeah. how do you think about that well that's one of the things i was thinking that too like i love that i love that call i mean all of it every part of it that that you know midwifing people in into living and midwifing people out of living you know that that we get to be in part of that part of that's amazing it's so beautiful um but the 
the thing about making art or like being in that conversation or those things, um, but but particularly like you're saying, like making art, it's like you fall into something. You know, this thing of like falling in um, is really profound. And you were um, asking about solitude. One of the things that I that I'm sort of wondering about with this question about joy and solitude, my sense is that given that it's a certain kind of practice of connection, you know, meaning and like profound, like you know grand grand connection not just like uh, you and i are connected yes but like the light coming through the window which is to say the sun which is to say the atmosphere which is to say the shadows which is to say the bubble of the bird song when it comes and the it's it to me it suggests like the idea of solitude gets more complicated <laughs> or like or the aloneness, the notion of aloneness becomes more complicated, you know, like let alone just the fact that our body is like a zillion creatures collaborating, you know. So I so that's one thing. Um, but but also kind of maybe to the side of that is that that kind of joining, say, if you're in if you're in, quote unquote, solitude, making your work for me, like I'm a writer, um, I am joining all of the voices who have spoken that I've heard. I'm I'm just like, it's so, you know, like radically collaborative and particularly radically collaborative when I note it is so. When yes. I note that I am not the singular voice, which we spend so much time <laughs> imagining as a real thing and lauding. But when in fact, I'm like, oh, here comes my beloved and recently deceased teacher, Gerald Stern, singing through me. Oh, oh, that's how my dad used to talk. Oh, here's my mom. Oh, here's Amiri Baraka. Oh my God, amazing. Oh, here's Toni Morrison. Thank you. All of these like visits, um, makes you know that for me anyway my making is never solitary yeah you know yeah we're talking with ross gay and you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting your thoughts at kqed forum online you can always call us 866-733-6786 you mentioned tina's call also made you think about midwifing people out of life um would you mind reading that passage when you basically are doing that? Yeah, yeah. For your dad? Yeah. And this is sort of toward the end of, this is the end of the essay. And, um, you know, we're just like trying and trying and hoping and hoping. And and, uh, and this, is, this is toward the end there. Um, and I, and the story, that's right, in this essay, I'm sort of like supposed to go teach a class, teach like a little poetry class, and then <laughs> I have to tell this story because it's actually important. And I decide, because um, me and my brother had just been visiting, um, me and my mom and my brother had just been visiting him, and we were like, he's so weak, we got to like get him stronger. And I get in my head, oh yeah, because I was a coach. I was like, that's what I do. <laughs> I'm going to get this dude stronger. And I went by like the sporting goods store and I got the little hand strengtheners and some bands and I mapped out this whole program on my drive down there. Um, and when I arrived, he was being taken away to his kidneys were failing. Hmm. Um, when they finally said I could go see him and walked me in my father's room, it was nearly quiet. It was nearly silent. No Judge Judy, no ESPN, no TV at all. Just the quiet whir of that of the dialysis machine against the wall, plugged in my father, who was on his back and looked to be sleeping. His mouth and eyes were softly closed. He was breathing quietly. The blanket was pulled over his chest, and his hands were at his side, 
I think the animal knew it was official now. I had had my last conversation with my father. This part was over now. And I remember feeling frantic, trapped, as I kept asking him if he could hear me. My hand was on his chest. I was shaking him just a little, asking if he could hear me. Dad, can you hear me? And he stayed sleeping quietly. Can you hear me, Dad? Can you hear me? And by now I was crying hard and I was kissing my father's face again and again, telling him I loved him again and again. It was the softest face in the world, my father's face. So quiet like that. I never knew it. I had never touched it before. I was crying onto his eyelids and cheeks and kissing him and telling him again and again I loved him. I love you, Dad. His brown face was lit with my tears. And with my forehead pressed into his and my hands on his cheeks, I noticed that my father had freckles sprinkled around the bridge of his nose and his upper cheeks. It was like a gentle broadcast of carrot seeds blending into his skin, flickering visible from this distance. It was through my tears I saw my father was a garden, or the two of us, or the all of us, not here long, maybe it is. And from that, what might grow? I think the lines in that, um, that that really, so much of that jumps out, the whole scene and the image of it. But when you say um, it was like a gentle broadcast of carrot seeds, mm-hmm. and then you say, through my tears, I saw my father was a garden, mm-hmm. that was really profound. And then, of course, a little bit later, we see that you do a whole essay on, on gardening yeah. and meditation. Um did you draw that connection before sort of meditating on the gardening piece of it? Or or um, did that happen for you where you connected it in that moment to a garden? Yeah, it's a great question. It's kind of a neat process question, too, like writing process question. Because basically, I was trying to describe my father's freckles. And I was like, oh, they're like seeds. They look like seeds. And then the next thing is like, oh, he's a garden. You know, so it's sort of just like a describing something led me to this realization, which is probably like the truest realization, <laughs> you know, that he's that he's like a garden, you know, and from which, you know, many things sort of practically me and my brother, you know, um, grew, et cetera, but also from which this kind of profound cl- closeness, um, actual physical proximity, um, Grew. I mean, I think that's raising the question and sort of like, oh, I think that's that's the question. Like, what is the what is the garden that this sorrow is maybe going to make grow, you know, or has made grow, you know? But yeah, that's one of those strange fortuitousnesses, if that's a word, in writing where you are led to a, a kind of realization, you know, yeah. or an understanding. Well, uh, Jesse writes, My fondest and first feeling of joy was visiting my grandmother. She loved gardening and crocheting. She often recalled a memory of a day she was gardening when she spotted small walking feet on the other side of the picket fence in front of her house. She thought to herself, Who'd let this little kid walk alone along such a busy street? When all of a sudden the gate swung open, only for her to realize that it was four-year-old me. (laughs) She asked what I was doing walking by myself, and I said, I want to visit my grandma. (laughs) (laughs) She would chuckle with pride. Our visits always brought us both joy. I continued to visit her every chance I got, all the way until she died. Hmm. 
um, it's it's kind of amazing that we got this comment about about gardening and uh-huh. about a, a grandmother who passed right in that moment. Um, I think the other piece of the way that you ask us to think about gardening is, I mean, in some ways it's a solitary act when mm-hmm. you are gardening, but you really focus on the communal act of yeah. gardening. And we're coming up on a break, but I'm wondering if you just want to say a little bit about how that struck you. Well, you know, um, again, you know, there's nothing better than a garden to show you that you're never alone. <laughs> you know, there's nothing better than a garden. And, um, but but I've for sure been part of um, a handful of really important kind of gardening or orcharding kind of collective uh, things that have shown me, you know, not only how to do this stuff, you know, how to plant things together, but also have shown me the sort of um, reminded me that, you know, my garden, for instance, and I go on about this, that, every you know, like fully a third of what grows in my garden comes from people I can name, you know. A hundred percent of it comes from elsewhere, from other kindnesses. But, you know, I can be like, oh, yeah, those black raspberries, those are Bryce's, and, you know, aided, it's the sweet grass, and on and on and on. I can do that forever. Um, but then, you know, there's also these sort of more, um, well, that's very, I was going to say more practical. That's very practical. Uh, but there are these other ways that I've just been in community gardening that has completely changed my life, too. Yeah. Um, After the break, I'd love for you to read a little bit from that essay, too, if you wouldn't mind. Again, we're talking with writer, poet, essayist Ross Gay. His new essay collection is Inciting Joy. You, our listeners, join the conversation with your reflections, the things that are being that that this conversation is inciting for you. Hopefully it's from a place of joy um, by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And we'll get to your calls also after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Ross Gay, who I should mention appears in person and online at Book Passage in Corte Madera tonight at 6 p.m. You, our listeners, can ask your questions, share your comments, and join us now at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Chris in Oakland. Hi, Chris. You're on. Hi. Um, I, was, I was really struck by the uh, earlier conversation about experiencing joy in the in the hang. And what that brought up for me was this, I'm, I'm personally in the midst of a, 
both a major life and a career transition. And I find myself with a lot of so-called unmarked time. Um, I have, luckily have a lot of support around me and not a lot of pressure to kind of move on with things. But and I'm kind of, I feel like I'm taking advantage of that. But I have this unshakable guilt and shame that I feel like I can't fully engage with the opportunities for for joy that I, I like for this rare moment where I'm I don't have a lot expected of me. I don't I, and I can essentially do whatever I want. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I wonder. Do, do you guys have any thoughts about like how to fully engage with 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 opportunities like this without the without the, the nagging uh, shame and guilt. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That's a great, I heard a kid talk yeah. back there too. <laughs> I don't have advice, but, um, I, but, but I will say <laughs> it doesn't, it's so funny because it's such a common experience. Like every, you know, it's such a common experience. Yeah. And, and, um, and it's almost like it's a, it's a kind of penance. You have to pay a penance for like, you know, having whatever it is, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to acknowledge like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know too. It reminds me a little bit also when when what comes up for you, even when we're talking about gardening or when you were talking about gardening, is this sense of um, gardening as a privilege. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people people are asking or you're thinking about well, it's a privilege to be able to garden. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's almost this sense of, um, I don't know, guilt is the right word. Partly. It's a kind of, it's a kind of perform, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the way that, um, so, you know, in the middle of the gardening essay, I sort of, you know, I, I, I raise a question. I say, some of you might now be saying something like gardening is a privilege. Yeah. And, <laughs> And I sort of offer a refutation and say not being able to garden or not being able to like have this little bit of time off that you have and to sort of enjoy it. Um, maybe with it sounds like maybe with a kid, you know, or not being able to drink clean water or not being able to to have housing or not being able to like not be poisoned um, is a privilege. That's the sort of that's the sort of, you know, oh, my God, I'm just so privileged. Like I have clean drinking water. Actually, no. It's disprivileged not to have all of these things. It's a disprivilege. And by disprivilege, I mean it's it's done to you. It's by force. It's by policy. It is action. And there's a way that calling calling what is sort of, you know, basic reasonable life, um, un, you know, unbrutalized life, a privilege, is actually a way of, one, I think, pretending that saying it, you know, it's like I can say something and pretend that it's an action, pretend that I'm doing something by saying... And then the other thing is that it obscures the violence, actually. Ultimately, I think it obscures that the violence is not by accident. It's not like, oh, my God, like, you know, everyone got addicted to opioids, like, such bad luck. No, no, no. That was done to people. That was that was an action. Um, and so my, my thing is, like, let us be very careful about the idea of, like, you know, this kind of discussion of privilege and let's, you know, I wonder about naming it disprivilege, you know, disprivilege is the brutality that we see. The absence of brutality is not privilege. And I like how you ask us to consider that maybe our most natural state is tending to others and to the earth as well. Uh, I had asked before the break, if you wouldn't mind reading from that essay a little bit um, about the the sort of mutual aid that you feel is so natural to us that really comes through. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, this is a, a uh, the essay after the essay about my father that um, is all about gardening. Among gardeners, I have noticed there is a near constant, if subtle, chatter asking what you need, asking for help, asking do you have any, asking could you use this? One day, Roro texts, hey, do you have a few heads of garlic? The next day, she calls to say she found a big stand of serviceberry bushes she wants to show me. One day, Bunny asks, can I get a few of those sweet potatoes? The next day, he says, I got a haul of chicken of the woods. Let me bring it by. Amy tells us we should come harvest some of their persimmons, and I bring some of those purple hot peppers that are coming up like crazy. Or, and perhaps this is the creme de la creme, when our friend Kate gives me a packet of seeds she saved from tomatoes we'd given her that were given to us as seedlings by our friend Mark. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth it goes. And why is this back and forth, another word for which is sharing, another phrase for which is mutual aid, the gardener's disposition, or maybe more to the point, practice. Because a garden, a healthy, thriving garden, tells us to. I suspect, whether we know it or not, we're just emulating the garden, which is a repository of sharing. We've got a lot of comments coming in. I feel like I should turn to them. Rich writes, It's hard to match the joy at having your team win a hard-fought victory in a big, big game. And uh, I guess the reason this comment speaks to me is because you have an essay about a basketball game, about pickup basketball, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. a big, big game. Yeah. It's called Insurgent Hoop. And, uh, and about the opportunity to sit and really observe what's happening in a pickup game, which mm-hmm. I think also gets at to what you're, all the, th- pulls together the threads of what you've been saying mm-hmm. about um, how we are, how we, how it, how it reflects a pickup game reflects so much of the opposite of what we are often conditioned to do and, and believe that totally. we should be doing. Yeah. Um, but but do you want to talk a little bit about what occurred to you as you really started to to meditate on pickup basketball? Yeah, yeah. And I totally, I told, I was actually thinking about sports and games when when actually when the caller was talking about art, like this sort of falling into something. And sometimes you're falling into something that feels solitary or your own work, or but sometimes you're falling into something like a game um and sometimes the game for me is like pick up basketball or any kind of basketball but the the things that i mean so many things you know that i just have observed I, you know i'm 48 years old i've been playing pickup ball since i was you know whatever 10 years old or something and i but to observe it very closely um in a way too i just want to say the name Cydia hartman in her book wayward lives beautiful experiments which mm. is a, such a guide i was just talking with this with my class this morning about that with my class this morning such a guide um, pick up ball, you know, there's so many qualities to it. One is that um, one of the features of pickup basketball, again, it's a very important to me that it's, and, and I, you know, like I love basketball, period. But when I'm talking about this kind of practice of, you know, this kind of practice of joy that pick up ball sort of teaches us, um, or like the structures of joy or something, I got to learn how to say that, um, is one of the things that happens is that you always ask to be a guest. At some point, you're going to have to ask to be led onto a team. Another thing that happens in pickup ball is that you're always going to be a host. You're going to have to ask people to join your team. Um, another thing that happens in pickup ball is that you can call, if you're waiting for the game, you can call the next game, but you can't call the next five games. So you can't, um, you can't, you can buy your place, but you can't buy up the whole block, you know? Um, 
in pickup ball, someone who was your absolute adversary, adversary, in, uh, you know, for a game and, you know, maybe is like, <laughs> you know, handling you or whatever. Um, you might really not like them. They might not be nice to you, <laughs> so-called. And um, three games later, you very well might be on their team. You know, and you might play beautifully together. So it doesn't abide the enemy. It doesn't abide the sort of permanent state of conflict. You know, this is just like there are all of these things sort of built into pick up ball. And every single time, um, every and this is what I really feel like many things I really feel like I get from Sadia Hartman that I learned. Um, every single time there's a new five or a new team that comes on the court, there's a new arrangement. The, the rules change and we decide what the rules are going to be at that moment, you know, and they will change throughout the game and they will change when the people change. And it's just like this beautiful practice slash study um, of people figuring out how to be together. Yeah. You know, to in honor and service of the game, in honor and service of the being together, actually, you know. And I'm kind of riffing on another person, Fred Moten, who says, you know, we got to get together to figure out how to get together. Well, it, it reflects the, the opposite of consumption and and hoarding yes. and excluding yes and um things that that uh, are all permissible essentially in a capitalist system yes. and and you do call out capitalism specifically yes, <laughs> by by name so so talk about the connection that you see between our ability to experience joy and capitalism well i think i think capitalism makes a market of our alienation I think that's maybe, you know, accurate. Um, it'll make a market of anything, including our um, our pain, obviously. Our pain, our sickness, our suffering, our sorrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like they, they would drum it up and make a market out of that. But, but to make maybe a big way of saying it, our alienation from one another, that's what keeps the thing going, you know? And um, Meaning, meaning in a way, too, that our, our need for one another has to get obscured. Um, and maybe our, even our capacity to honor that need, you know, to care for that need. And, and so when I say incitement, I mean, there's something very troubling to that system, that system that requires we be alienated from one another when we sort of scratch the surface and are like, wait, 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 wait. Oh, you're heartbroken, too. Oh, OK. I didn't realize that. They convinced me that wasn't possible, that you had a heart, you know? Um, so, yeah, that's that's how I think about it <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. And so, so yeah, get get provoked. Get, yeah, get, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and when I say it's disruptive, too, like very practically, it's like you might be more inclined to share stuff. That's all. You know, that even just that. Like if you're more inclined to share your lawnmower, if you're more inclined to share your house, if you're more inclined to share your food, you're more inclined to share your everything – that troubles that troubles a um a system that valorizes hoarding yeah well tamara writes being at any event attended by hundreds or thousands of people a sporting event a concert a rally and singing together mm, mm. under a wide open sky just belting it out in unison is one nothing brings me greater mm. delight i swear many of the world's problems could be solved if we could sing together Beautiful. more uh, Tamara also wants us to know, I have the book of delights, <laughs> and it is indeed delightful. Mm. We are talking with the author of the book of delights, but who has a new 
collection of essays called Inciting Joy, and that's Ross Gay, poet and essayist. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Uh, Another listener, Eric, writes, My dear late friend Gabriel devoted his life to working with victims of genocide. His favorite quote that he always shared was by Joseph Campbell. Participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. Mm. We cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. Mm. Well, beautiful. You talk, especially at the beginning in the introduction of the book, about letting sorrow in. Mm-hmm. And we, we touched on the connection between joy and sorrow. But But what do you mean by letting sorrow in? You know, I kind of wonder if... I'm still trying to understand this better, you know, but I, my, my inclination in my own experience is that the more I'm able to sort of witness and, you know, bear witness to and honor and love, care for my own sorrows, you know, not be terrified by them and maybe not be alienated from them, actually, um, the more likely it is or possible it is that I could care for yours, you know, and not be terrified of your sorrow. And I feel, you know, again, speaking for myself as the first subject, um, I'm like, I know, I know from experience that um, paying attention or, or honoring or even acknowledging my own heartbreak can be terrifying, you know. And, and I feel like there, I've probably in many ways been acculturated, you know, to to be like that. You know, I don't think it's special for us to be sort of deeply alienated from our heartbreak. But I think if we are able to sort of um, let the sorrow in and witness it and be a, be open to it in a way, um, I do have a strong sense that that will keep make me more able to be open to and witness and care for your sorrows too, you know? So I do feel like, yeah, it's like take care and taking care of yourself a little bit or witnessing your own heartbreak to be able to witness others' heartbreaks and care for, not just witness, I mean, but, 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 but care for. Yeah. Um, let me go to Carol in Foster City. Carol, thanks for waiting. Go right ahead. Hi. Well, after the important things he said, I feel a little trivial, but <laughs> it still was my joy. Um, I don't sound it, but I'm 85, Mm. and I had to move to a new place and leave my garden and my koi. And Mm. this year, I have a hanging orchid plant and a dove, and her mate decided to nest there. Mm. I cannot tell you what joy they brought. We even named them, Mm. Helen and David. (laughs) And when those babies were born, and I could see their little heads peep over the side of the hanging pot, uh, I felt the same as I feel when I hear Beethoven's Ode Mm. to Joy. Mm. Just that overwhelming internal feeling of, oh, oh, Mm. this is beyond description. Mm. And I thank you for this discussion. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> I, love that. I, I love that she identified that, or that Carol identified that. Do you? <clears throat> well, I have two questions, and we don't have enough time, so you can maybe pick. Okay. One is, I wonder about making joy a practice. Mm-hmm. The other question that I have is, 
I couldn't help noticing your books have been on gratitude, delight, and now joy. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering about what being in that space, being being forced to be in that space and really thinking about them to produce a book, what that has done for you. So so you can <laughs> pick mm. either of those two yeah, questions yeah, to yeah. answer. Yeah. First, I want to say my mother, too, had... Um, at her apartment had had birds move into her impatience i think <laughs> and same thing it was just like incredible yeah. um i think the um um what was the first one you had the first one was making joy a practice like have you thought yeah about yeah that? yeah yeah um yeah i feel like that's a longer kind of and it requires a bunch of us to talk about <laughs> but maybe the second one um there's something just very like sort of um it's funny like i i feel like i there's some kind of moving in my body about like that the what it means to what it means to have been deeply kind of figuring out this this well one thing i'll say this i'll say this i found that there's this very important thing uh, and maybe it's almost a principle that this stuff has sort of you know and the, the conversations, it's not just the books, it's the conversations that have always allowed me to understand what I'm writing about. And the, the thing is like, what happens when you study what you love? That's, that's kind of the, one of the questions that have, has been given to me by virtue of like doing this work. What happens when you study what you love? That, that's a very complicated question, I think, and it's, a very, and it's open-ended in a certain kind of way. But I... I feel like thinking about gratitude, thinking about delight, thinking about joy, thinking about caring for one another in the midst of our heartbreak, um, thinking about how we get together, thinking about all of these, thinking about Luther Vandross, who's coming up. <laughs> study what, what does it mean when we study what we love? Yeah. What happens to our hearts, you know? Well, Roskay, thanks for the hang. This was awesome. <laughs> Same. And thanks, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners. This oh, is Forum. Beautiful. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country... 
on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.